I received a question from Saiganesh, um, which was actually unrelated specifically to the Yoga Sutras, but it was a good question, and it's frankly easier for me to answer it here than it is to write him a note. So, um, The essence of the question, he was, we were having a discussion about um, an individual who has an extreme aversion to almost all foods and could only eat a few things, and we were talking about where such aversions would come from. Are they physiological? Are they psychological? Um, it's that, that, that specific subject isn't the question, but Saiganesh essentially asked, what is the subconscious in that context? I don't think the word subconscious actually has a Sanskrit equivalent, although you might be able to tell me whether it does or not. It has a lot of other... Um, I mean, in Sanskrit, there's a lot of other specific words. And in English, you're trying to just summarize it so that we don't have to get confused by a lot of other language. And secondly, the word subconscious in English has been greatly influenced by the psychologists, I mean psychiatrists by by Freud and others who have their own big definitions of what the subconscious is. And some of them, and I'm not an expert here, kind of bleeds over into the superconscious. It gets very confused if you look at it just from what the psychiatrists say. Then Swami Kriyananda um, created something in 1979 that he called superconscious living, and he used the word subconscious in the context of, of that, subconscious, conscious, and superconscious, and he gave it a very specific definition. So in light of that, I've always used his definition of it, and his definition is simply this, that... Um, the superconscious is our connection to the infinite and that all true creativity and inspiration comes uh, when we expand beyond the ego into a greater reality. The subconscious is simply everything that we have already done. Um, Just exactly like you would talk about the computer, the memory in a computer, and it is inherently not creative because it's merely, it merely stores up whatever has happened. So therefore, it's our karma, it's the, it's the vrittis in the spine, it's the samskars, all the samskars that we have, it's this life, it's all other lives, because it's everything that brought you to this point. And the conscious mind, Swami explained, is simply the battleground between those two forces, which I thought was a very interesting way to put it. It's like we're either going to be drawn into a more expansive reality or we're going to be repeating whatever is already programmed into us. And and that includes identifying with the human body. You know, everything, everything that is already there that is not affirming a greater reality, that all falls into the subconscious realm. Um, Now, if you think in terms of karma because we were talking about someone who has an extreme psychological or physiological response. Um, Specifically, I was talking about uh, the child of a friend of mine who's now a grown man, and he absolutely refused to eat almost everything. Just, you know, with a will that was not merely, I don't like it, Mommy. Um, Nancy Mayer, who grew up to be an extremely sensitive gourmet cook, when she was a little child, if her mother would put, like, for example, peas and carrots in her mouth together, she would sort them out with her mouth and she would spit out the ones she didn't like. (laughs) 
as a baby. And her mother thought that was so adorable, she'd do it for all her friends and then let her daughter spit out what she didn't like. And so she grew up with this very refined sense of taste. You know, she's a great, as many of you know, she's written cookbooks, she's a fantastic cook, she has a capacity. I've cooked with her a lot, so I know. She goes into super consciousness when she cooks. She's on a completely different level. She can taste, you know, one teaspoon of something in a 10-gallon pot. It's not quite right. She puts a teaspoon in. It's better. And it is better. That's the most amazing thing. Um, But this child just simply couldn't and wouldn't. He just absolutely couldn't. And, you know, it's easy to think there's something wrong with the child, but my friend once... He would eat cheese. The child would eat cheese. And once the mother sliced cheese that he always loved, and he put it in his mouth, and he just spit it out and accused his mother of poisoning him. And how could she possibly do that to him? She realized she had cut a cucumber, which is a food he hated, with the same knife before she cut the cheese. And he was so sensitive to the trace on there that it just it was completely repulsive to him. That helped her appreciate that it was an experience he was having. So when we were talking about this, Saikanesh asked, you know, you ask the question, is it, let's say it's either phobia, psychological phobia, or physiological reaction. I had heard about something called super tasters, which is how she began to understand her son, that things that taste in a certain way to some people just are so over the top. But your, your DNA and your physical body is determined by your karma, you know, your, the vrittis in your spine come before you manifest the body. So, so that's where everything has to start. You make, you make the physical conditions and the physical form that exactly match whatever it is that you have to learn in your life. And people try to make, say it's heredity or genetic, but all of that comes, I mean, karma comes first. Why did you choose to associate yourself with this particular genetic pool? because it's, it was what you needed. When Swami wrote in his autobiography about the family that he was born into, he puts in there, um, I, I'm describing this because I want to tell you, that you know, the, the, I don't remember how he put it, but the forces or the conditions with which I chose to associate myself. He said, I was born fully myself. It was not like these conditions made me who I was, but these were the appropriate conditions for me to participate in. It's a very different way of looking at it. These are the influences that were required in order for the life to unfold in the way it needed to unfold. So when somebody has an extreme condition of some kind, yes, of course, it's their karma, it's their vrittis, and it does all come from subconsciousness because it's everything that was, you might even say, passive, in the sense that it brought you to this point. And then from this point, you have the, you, you're on the battleground of what you do with what has happened to you. That's why conditions are always neutral. It just depends on the field of kudukshetra, so to speak, the conscious mind. Do you listen to the expansive whisper, whisper of superconsciousness, or do you listen to the habitual whisper of, this is what we've always done, this is how we like to do it, Let's just keep doing it this way. I mean, not everything in your samskars is terrible, but at all times we need to be even building on that and taking it where we need to go. Does that answer the question? You asked, use the word mind too, which, you know, Tom Schott, who I speak in, 
loving memory of Tom Schott, who's on vacation right now. Tom asked me periodically to define the word mind, and I periodically refuse to do so, so I think I'll just refuse to do so again, because <laughs> I don't know how to define it. It's too confusing an English word for me. So, Tom, if you see this, you see we remember you here. He wrote me earlier that he would be away for two weeks. Okay, any other questions about that or anything else we did? All right. We are now in Tapasya. We are in number three of the Niyamas, which are the observances. We did the Yamas, which are those um, contrary forces that we need to restrain in order to allow the Niyamas to non-restrain, to to allow um, the positive forces within us to express. You know, austerity as a niyam is really interesting. We used to joke, and the word for austerity is tapasya. And when Swamiji would give us, when we were all getting spiritual names from Swami Kriyananda in the early years, your great fear was that he would call you tapasyananda. Nobody wanted that name, and we were all afraid we might get it. <laughs> but he was never so unkind as to give it to any of us. <laughs> anyway, Swamiji describes tapasya, and he uses the English word austerity, is withholding energy from going in any direction that you would prefer that it not take. It means accepting, and then he goes to the, it means accepting but not causing pain. He says a lot in there. It's a very interesting phrase. Um, Sri Yukteswar defines austerity and tapasya as patience, which I thought was an amazing definition, meaning that whatever has to be endured, you simply endure it. And you endure it calmly and you endure it patiently. And when you think about it, that's really exactly what it's about, whether you're being tortured or whether you have a desire that is not going to be fulfilled whether you're fasting and, and wish, it, wish that you weren't, you know, whether you're deprived of money and can't spend in the way you want to spend, one way or another, energy is not able to go in a direction that you'd like it to take. That's what Swami actually says. I read that wrong. From going in any direction you'd like to take. It's sort of an odd way he wrote that, but it means that you have an inclination to go in that direction, and austerity means that you will withhold it. Um, either because, well, for any number of reasons. He says, um, self-deprivation builds up energy to be dispensed in a more important direction, such as God communion. So that's essentially what we're talking about here. And this, you know, austerity, the the niyamas and the yamas are the first uh, first two described of the eightfold, uh, eight branches that Patanjali describes as the foundation of yoga. And so the principle of austerity really has to be brought in there really early because, um, because we're in a corrective period from the Kali Yuga understanding of spirituality as based on the crucifixion of Jesus. The more you suffer, the more spiritual you are. And if you're not suffering, you're not spiritual. Um, that's just been a deeply held Catholic point of view. If you ever see the movie Song of Bernadette, which is a movie well worth watching, it's a beautiful, beautifully done. It's an, the old black and white version. There's probably a new one, and it's probably terrible. So the old black and white one is the one I'm talking about, 
which is classically beautiful. But at the end of it, she, you know, I don't know how true it was in her actual life, but Bernadette ends up in a monastery and she dies very young. I think she dies when she's 24. And she has a conflict with the novice mistress and there's just, you know, they play it up in the movie. Whether it was true in life, I don't know. And the novice mistress is very, very jealous of Bernadette because she's had this vision of, of uh, the Virgin Mary and she's in so many ways so um, praised. And when she's dying and everybody feels, when Bernadette is dying and everybody feels that she's such a saint, this novice mistress is just eaten up with jealousy. And she says something to Bernadette, especially like, how can you be so saintly you've never suffered? And Bernadette just sort of takes that as the fact. Oh, yeah, I guess I never have. But it was just, it was the given that if you didn't suffer, you couldn't possibly be favored by God. Then Bernadette thinks to show the nun the fact that her um, leg is completely eaten up with tuberculosis and that this whole time she's been enduring this horrible pain from this terrible physical condition she has that she's never even mentioned to anyone. Oh, yeah, by the way, maybe I did suffer. First of all, Bernadette never conceived of it that way, but also this is how saintliness had to be defined. And so in the, you know, the most uh, Kali Yuga Catholic tradition, the most uh, ancient materialistic way, there's lots of self-imposed suffering, even flagellating yourself and fasting and wearing hair shirts and putting thorns, all these things, because if you don't suffer, you're not spiritual. So we're in rebellion against that. God is a loving God. We can have it all. And all the sort of new thought movements, just the more you enjoy yourself, the more pleasing that is to God. And whatever you feel like doing, that must be what God wants you to do, which is not quite true either. So we have to find the true middle ground. And the the true middle ground in spiritual life is the same as in regular life. If you really want to accomplish something, you have to get the energy from somewhere. It takes energy to make anything happen, and it takes magnetism. And you have to pull a force of concentration together to to be able to draw inspiration, talking about the superconscious. One of the characteristics of the subconscious is simply this. Oh, the easier things are, the better it is. The less energy I have to put out, the happier I am. That's what the subconscious mind tells you. Um, It was so interesting to see Swami Kriyananda and... He had so many interesting characteristics, but one of them was he did not enjoy low energy. He just just didn't enjoy it. Sometimes he needed to rest, but he never sought a low energy experience or a tamasic energy experience. Whereas, I mean, someone like myself has to freely admit that a whole day lying on my back reading a novel can just be really just a great time as far as I'm concerned. Yes, Dandava? I'm still a little confused by his first line in there about it um, because it doesn't sound like a middle ground. It says, withholding energy from going in any direction you'd like to take. That sounds like Mm -hmm. if you want to do it, don't. I think it's bad editing. (laughs) Austerity means... Honestly, when I read this, I thought, how did Lakshman let this line get through? Meaning his editor, because I just... Austerity means withholding energy from going in any direction you'd like it to take. I read that what Swami intended to say but did not say very clearly is that you have an inclination and a certain direction 
and the austerities that you don't just follow um, whatever inclination occurs to you. So the, an instance of tapasya is an instance of withholding energy from some particular thing you'd like to do that maybe you shouldn't, but it doesn't mean a blanket ban on doing anything you want to do. No, but the point thing here is um, if you don't like popcorn, it's not a tapasya to not eat it. <laughs> you can't say my tapasya is not to go to the movies when you don't like movies. So it has to be, the tapasya is that there's a force from you going in one direction, and the austerity is when you learn to discipline that force so that you can direct your energy to a higher purpose. And I know that's not really what's exactly written there. I read that about eight times. First, I just changed it, um, which is how I read it to you all, because I, I forgot that that wasn't what was really written there. But I believe that's what he meant. Karen, what do you think? Um, give, take the microphone. Uh-huh. Yeah. Chris, this is because a lot of people listen to recording, and if you don't speak into the mic, there's this long silence, and people listening to it just get really upset with us. Okay, I, I have a feeling he might actually mean just what he wrote. It, resolutely, I quell my inclinations. I, it's just sort of observing Swami, what little I did see of him in person. I just observed him to always, to really never allow a personal inclination to draw him. It seemed like he, I mean, he made a real practice of... That's exactly... Okay, okay. I mean, I was just, excuse me. I think that his meaning is exactly that. You know, resolutely, I quell my inclinations. Um, it's just that I don't think it's... I think the language could have been a little more clear because it just kind of hangs there and you don't quite get it. But I think that is exactly what he meant, that m- most, but not all, of our inclinations are not taking us to God communion and austerity is to withhold energy from those things that are not taking us from God communion. But the element which we just said, there has to be an inclination toward it or else it's not austerity. Is that fair enough? Yeah. Um, Nishkama? Um, Just conjecturing that perhaps he's talking more about uh, impulsiveness as opposed to uh, inclinations that that come from your inner self. Well, any inclination so that you can redirect the energy Self-deprivation builds up energy to be dispensed in a more important direction. Yeah. So, so anything. It's okay, to, it, it, it's, uh, it's okay to dispense information, uh, energy uh, that's, that's more appropriate. So it's not categorically taboo not to express anything. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's a very fine line, actually, because if it's if you if you. Well, Swamiji was asked how much tapasya is enough, and the answer was that which you can do joyfully. And if it, if you're actually creating, um, if you're if you're suppressing your own spirit, then he said you have to back up a little bit. So it, this is where the art and the science come together, and many people make the mistake. And this is how he puts it here. He speaks in terms of pride, but also. Um, you can. That's why what he wrote is just a little bit um, not as clear as it sometimes is, because too much self-censoring does not actually build up energy. It actually reduces your energy. Because if you're if you're censoring yourself all the time, then no energy ever gets moving. Uh, 
you're at war with yourself and you're, you're canceling everything out. So a conscious realization that this just isn't really a good direction for my energy. I'm attracted to something or someone that is really not going to help me. I'm inclined to um, drink too much coffee. I eat way too many pastries. Um, I have a tendency to be a little snippy and I shouldn't be so snippy. I take too much pride in... I, I take it, it goes to my head when people say good things about me. These are inclinations that you need to resist because they will drain your energy and you won't have anything left over for God communion. But if every time you have an impulse, you think, oh, I can't do that, I can't do that, I can't do that, then you, you end up the making the, the spiritual path so narrow that you can't walk on it anymore. And that's, that's the fine line we're dealing with here. What if someone is suffering in a way, say physically, um, and are not able to do so joyfully? What is that? What is happening for them spiritually at that point? I, they're probably make, not making the spiritual progress that doing it in an attitude of tapasya helps. Do they? Is it like neutral? Does it? Do they lose ground? I can't think of a better way to phrase it. but No, that's a very good question because a lot of people do suffer miserably and angrily. Yeah, uh, you have to just say that. I mean, if you assume that all karma is fair and that a person only gets exactly what is right for them to have and that the purpose of all karma is to feel the hand of a benevolent greater reality guiding you to a more expansive understanding... And if instead you become angry, annoyed, unhappy about that, then it's not like you're falling behind. It's that you just get to do it again. You just, you just, you just get to do it again until you can actually pass that test. And so a lot of people have experiences, have karma, but they don't work out karma. They just live through it. I mean, let's take an extreme example. The karma of suicide, as it has been expressed, which I believe is true, is that if you are faced... In a, it matters why you commit suicide also. There's, there's nuances of what your motivation is. But what I've heard repeated, and I think it's, it sounds true, is that you simply get brought to exactly that same level of suffering again in another incarnation, and then you just have to have the courage to live through it. Yeah, it's really grim, because what alternative would there be? Yeah, and but it also, people's inner reality is also taken into account. God is not a tyrant. And a person could be more brave inside than they appear to be on the outside. But many people become very bitter and angry at God. And then they, you know, you see people around who are bitter and angry at God for no particular reason, and they build up these attitudes in these ways. I do think it, in the end of life, when the mind is not completely coherent, I, it's a little confusing for me when I see old people going, older people going through very difficult things. I, I just am never quite sure exactly. So you just kind of hope for the best. Because how many of us can just cheerfully, without any reservation, face difficult karma? We, we, we vacillate, and God is, he understands. That would be the best way to say it. Because I know you don't want to be freaked out for the people you love. I know, yeah, I know it's 
you'll get it right this time. It's hard, it's hard to use that as an incentive for other people if they're not receptive, but it's definitely an incentive for yourself. It certainly worked for me on many occasions. Wow, this is bad enough to be doing this now. We sure don't want to see this later. And in one, at one time in our community, this wasn't physical pain, but emotional pain when a man left his wife for another woman. We were all friends in the community, and the next day Swamiji suggested that all three of them plus several of the rest of us come over to his house for dinner, and he asked the two women to cook dinner for us. And I said, Sir, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> do you know what happened yesterday? He said, Of course I know. He said, um, But they're going to have to work it out sooner or later. He said, Why wait to some incarnation when they don't remember why they're so upset with each other? He said, They might as well face it now. And they did, pretty much. It was, But it was like, Wow. But, but the truth is, why not? You're going to work it out sooner or later. How long do you want it? How long, how complicated, how convoluted, how torturous do you want it to be? If you can meet the wave at the crest, you can get over it. I don't know. Yes. Um, <clears throat> perhaps in addition to have, having to come back and all over again and do it until you get it right, you probably add more weight and more energy to it, too, by resisting it and getting angry at it, so you make it even worse. The way Swami puts it is if the karma is this big, well, this was I was talking about meeting it at the crest, if the karma is this big, you know, the, the energy will be like this, and then over time, everything gets smaller. You know, time passes and the memory fades. So if you're only able to raise your consciousness to here and you just hang out until the wave has gotten smaller than you, you think you've overcome the karma, but you haven't really because you haven't changed your consciousness. You've just waited until it was, it, the experience was dulled. But that means when the wave hits you the next time, not only did you not grow to it, but because you refused to grow to it, you're even smaller in relationship to it now. But, but the other side of that is that God is merciful and no tyrant. And this is just mathematics. This isn't a, a, somebody horrible trying to punish us. But it, it does make you brave. And success is simply enduring as best you can. And when Swami says here, receiving but not inflicting pain, how he puts it, it means accepting but not causing pain. I also was, I mean, these are, this is, his own explanation here is like a sutra. I mean, it's so, he, he made this so succinct. But accepting but not causing pain, even not causing pain to yourself by resistance, I mean, who are you causing pain to? I mean, of course, you can react against other people and try to pass the suffering on to them, but also you create more suffering for yourself instead of just accepting that this is my karma and this is what has to happen and I'm just going to go through this. You cause more pain for yourself by creating a whole second layer of problem on top of this, which is anger, dismay, whatever it might be. Um, but, you know, it's difficult, especially... I mean, it's just difficult. That's why it's, that's why it's austerity. <laughs> your energy wants to go. The direction your energy wants to take is resistance, resentment, rebellion, fear, all the different ways it would want to go. Um, say it ain't so, Lord, say it ain't so, instead of just being patient. All karma ends. You know, I think of people who are imprisoned. I often think of was it Bob McCain, who was seven years in Vietnam as a, a POW? John King, yeah, McCain. You know, just 
every so often when I'm uncomfortable for a minute or two, I just think about that. What if? What if there was no way out and, and no idea of when this would end? Like, what would you do? How would you, how would you actually, what would you find within yourself? I, I, I'm not looking forward to ever being tested like that. I don't know what would happen. One likes to think one has that kind of strength. But you don't know till you're tested, and that's why he tests you. You're in, you have to withhold your energy from where you want it to go. You have to accept pain without causing any. Not even hatred or resistance or anything like that. There's an amazing story of a Vietnam POW who was being tortured by someone. And um, he just was at the end of his strength, is how he put it, on a level that he never knew. He never knew he could be pushed so far. And in that moment, he surrendered to God. I don't know if he was a man of faith before that moment or not, but he said he surrendered to God on a level that he also did not know was possible. It was just a complete, just he had to absolutely give up all self-will. Just a complete realization that something else was happening and it wasn't about him. And in that moment, he felt this tremendous freedom and he looked at his torture with this sense of compassionate unity, at which point the man stopped and he was never tortured again. Wow. Is it worth it? I don't know. I mean, you would, you would have to say yes. But still, it's a tough price to pay. Mother Teresa of Calcutta said, God never um, asks anything of us greater than we can do. But then she added, sometimes I wish he didn't have so much faith in me. <laughs> so we can all certainly feel the truth of that. Yes. Yeah, one thought was the giving up is giving up the ego. So you're, you're not holding any ego. Right. And the less ego that you hold, you know, the more, I don't know, it's just, that was my thought when about Swami was talking about. Well, the ego, the ego by definition is you hold yourself separate. Right. from all of creation. You define yourself as individual and you hold yourself separate from the reality around you. So when the ego's preferences are offended, and I would think physical torture would be something the ego would not be keen on, and when you finally surrender even that preference, what you have let go of is your separate individual identity. You have simply, and it's exactly what that man experienced. He just merged with a greater reality, and then there was no individual self to suffer. And even when he looked at the man who was hurting him, he couldn't see him as separate from himself. And that expression of unity was so overwhelming to this man that he couldn't go forward anymore. He had to stop also. That's what Richard, Richard Wormbrand describes when he's was in difficult... I mean, these extreme circumstances, a lot of times uh, extreme athletes describe these things too. And not always. Sometimes they're, they just have to do it with willpower. But sometimes they'll talk about mountain climbing and things like that where they just enter into a unity with the world around them where there's no separate self to strive or suffer or anything. It's just everything just moves. 
And of course, that's what people crave who do that sort of things. They crave those moments. There's a man, um, uh, uh, he wrote the book uh, Into Thin Air, Rob Krakauer, is that his name? John Krakauer. He was an ice climber, and he just talked about the absolutely insane things he did. I mean, really crazy things that he did. But it was all because when he pushed himself so far past um, what was normal, then he would break he would break free of his individuality. And that experience was so magnificent that he would just go after it again and again. It's, I think it's better to do Kriya. <laughs> I think it's more efficient. <laughs> the first time I met an extreme athlete, he wasn't even that extreme, but he was not a devotee, but he was explaining to me, you know, what he did and why, and I recognized it. I didn't... Um, I didn't resonate with it, but I recognized it. Oh, you're looking for God. You know, I have a better method, <laughs> but he wasn't interested. Okay, any other questions? But when, you, when you're doing it like that, um, let's see, the word tapasya becomes a little, uh, it's, is it an austerity when you're investing in what you really want and not squandering your energy in directions that won't bring you what you want, where is the, where is the suffering? And in one, one uh, definition of tapasya was devotion, which Swami later said was not really a very accurate, but, but true tapasya is done out of devotion to a higher cause. So you're not really emphasizing, you're not emphasizing your... Um, you're not em- emphasizing what you're not getting. You're emphasizing what you are getting. So, I mean, that's how the, you know, really determined athletes and so on who just train all the time. They miss a great deal of life, but it's worth it to them. Or almost worth it. Were you, did you yeah, I saw it as doing what you should be doing every moment. Should be doing in the sense of, yes, you, you're quelling. You're, I, I steadfastly, remorselessly, resolutely, I quell my inclinations that take me away from where I want to go. Exactly. Yeah. A higher cause, that can just be some mundane thing. Well, certainly. People can sacrifice for a higher cause. A a mother will sacrifice her career to raise her child, and she will certainly consider that to be a higher cause than her own um, desire to be a doctor. You know, I'll raise my children. The higher cause could be an Olympic gold medal. Um, or to prove to yourself that I can climb this mountain. The highest cause is God communion uh, because it's the highest fulfillment. But a higher cause would just simply mean higher than what you're denying yourself. There's something that you believe in more than you believe in just going in the direction that you like. Like if if, um, you're suffering, you have some pain, some some illness, and and so instead of... um, you have so much consideration for the people around you, you don't want them to suffer because you're suffering. If you can suffer in silence, I mean, and, and look at God, and feel, would that be? Well, it's not quite that simple because sometimes a refusal to allow other people to participate in your life is actually the inclination you should quell. So it, you, can't, you can't draw really neat lines like that. But the way... Um, uh, I, I, there was a, uh, a conversation with a woman saint that Swami often just 
describes in this context, where one of her she's suffering, and one of her disciples says that uh, anybody who's not willing to suffer is not worthy of God. And she said, well, this smacks of ego. And anyone who's not happy to suffer is not, um, is not a true devotee. And she says, this too, this is better, but this still has ego. Well, then what is the right answer? She says, if you're a true devotee, you don't even consider yourself suffering. You don't even think of this as suffering. See, that was where Bernadette was. You're just, um, you're just accepting. You're not resisting anything. That was where Bernadette was. She, her, she had this tuberculosis, and she just had it. It was, it was what God had sent her. So what was there to resist? And what was there even to think about? It was simply the conditions of her life. All the conditions of her life were given to her by God. So what difference did it make? That's what Richard Wormbrand described when he was in the communist prison and he was being severely abused. He was resisting. He was using his willpower to not give in to his resistance, but then it occurred to him that nothing could be happening except that Jesus wanted it to happen. And he didn't question why Jesus might ask him to do that. That wasn't part of his makeup. But if Jesus wanted him to do this, what's wrong with this? And that's the condition of a Brahmin. When we talk about the four castes, the Shudra, the Vaisha, the Kshatriya, and the Brahmin, one of the characteristics of each of those is how you deal with suffering. In the lowest caste, the shudra caste, when you begin to suffer, you try to solve the problem by going unconscious. You sleep, you overeat. In our age, you watch television, you drink. And you see people, they they don't really participate in their lives because they're always just dulling their consciousness. And that's the lowest way of dealing with suffering. At the Vaisha level, You try to control the world so that suffering will never get to you. And that may be that you make everybody in your world behave a certain way. You get enough money. You have your fortress. You have your security. It also goes to that you make sure that those people don't take down the Amazon forest and those people don't do nuclear war and those people don't pollute your water. It's all like, this makes me uncomfortable. This has to change externally. That's You fight the battle outside yourself the kshatriya level, you fight the battle within yourself. Why am I so afraid of this? Let me overcome my fear. Why do I think that this is so unpleasant? Let me overcome my sensitivity to pain. The battle is completely inside yourself. You realize they are never going to behave the way you want them to, and so you just get over it because you're controlling your own inner inclinations. And the Brahmin level, the question of pain does not arise because everything is God's will. So where I'm never, you know, there's no I to be separate from my life experiences. And that's what the story that you just forget, that the idea doesn't arise. You may be conscious that this is a painful situation, but you don't identify or personalize that pain. You see? And that, I mean, you can see what a very refined level that is. And it gives us something to work on. And we just have to, every time we watch ourselves, we have to just think about, what am I doing here? Most of us are kshatriyas, kind of inching our way toward Brahmins. But there's lots of times when it's just too much. I'm just going to watch four videos or read a novel. Or just eat a whole quart of ice cream. Or, if you're inclined, have a little whiskey, whatever it might be. 
you know, none of these are good things. They're just reinforcing the idea that unconsciousness, this is where I started with Swamiji. Swamiji never enjoyed being unconscious. He just didn't enjoy it. It was not a pleasure to him anymore because he knew that the only way that happiness could be found was in expansive energy. And, you know, I'm honest enough to admit that I like unconsciousness. He, he tells the story in the path when he was just so tired of trying to be master's disciples and the constant demands on him that he, exp- he just got so rebellious, he lay on his bed and read Shakespeare. <laughs> wow. What a collapse. <laughs> you know, for most of us, that would be a step up. But that was an honest description of it. And all the years that I saw him, he just never, he just would never go that way. Except, you know, very briefly, and then he would always make a huge deal of it. And I took a two-hour nap. I took a one-hour nap. Well, that's because you were working all night, Swamiji. Oh, yeah. You know, just like, it was always a surprise. And, I mean, I've said to you, oh, we'd go on vacation and, I often traveled with him when we were supposed to be on vacation. Well, breakfast at 9, huh? Breakfast at 8. How about breakfast at 11, Swamiji? Nope, breakfast at 9, breakfast at 8. You know, what are we going to do today? How about nothing? No, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, energy was always moving, which is, of course, a good lesson. Yeah. Okay, any other questions or thoughts? We've made it through three sentences. But they were humdingers, so that's all right. And then the next word is, this quality can develop pride, in which case it becomes its own enemy. Okay, it, uh, pride is something that you see in, uh, in certain ashrams and in certain yogis. I was uh, reflecting recently on uh, one, something Swamiji said about his spiritual successor, Jyotish, and the necessity for having a spiritual, an overall spiritual director for Ananda. Because simultaneously with having an overall spiritual director for Ananda worldwide, Swamiji continually speaks against having too centralized an administration. I've been reviewing lots of files recently. One of the things he said is the way we can keep from being too centralized is simply not to have a central office. <laughs> He thought that was the best way to avoid it. And uh, at a certain point in the history of Ananda, he declared all the colonies equal, just so that we would not be in a situation where anybody would be over anybody. And at the same time, though, there is an overall spiritual director. And it's not that that person, Jyotish, as it is now, doesn't have responsibilities or leadership. But Swami defined it in an even more subtle way, which I've also always absolutely loved. He said, you need to have someone who epitomizes everything that an Ananda devotee ought to be. Because then their leadership is as much by the magnetism of their consciousness as by any rules and regulations that they make. And Jyotish and Devi together, now those of us who are long part of Ananda, we just take their character for granted. Because we're so, well, truthfully, because we're so well trained. You know, their kindness, their humility, their um, approachability, their serviceful nature, their sense of humor, their harmony. Um, their, you, know, just, you can make a very, very long list. But what we don't see is we don't see this austere power. We don't see this kind of uh, uh, impersonal nature to the point where nothing really matters, you know, this aloofness. And in many ashrams, that's your ideal. 
you become, you know, this yogi who never really participates in anything. That's not the, that's not what Swami said for us, and that's not what Jyotish and Devi are setting for us, because we see what an ideal Ananda devotee looks like, and pride in their austerity is definitely not something that you see. I mean, they don't even, they don't even think about that. I mean, the life of of selfless service that they live. It's just the way they live. It doesn't occur to them that they should get all puffed up about it. It it just doesn't even cross their mind. But that can happen to devotees. And as I said, we don't see it that much in our ashram because we're very well trained, but it does happen. People just are so proud of what they are able to do. You know, they can endure this, they can endure that, they can go without shoes in the winter, they can live without heat in the cold weather, they can exist only on nettles and sometimes we do begin to take to ourselves um, our own accomplishments and that's the great danger of, of too much tapasya is that you begin to define yourself and just, just the opposite of weakening the sense of self because see what tapasya will do is it will weaken the sense of self because you won't take those things so personally just as we were talking about You'll just see yourself as part of a greater reality without the necessity to grab all these details just the way you want them. But if instead you become proud of that, you've just completely neutralized whatever you get. Swamiji said uh, at one point that the karma for spiritual pride is to get attracted to false teachings. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes I've seen people sort of go baying down the wrong track and I often wonder about that you know why would such a seemingly intelligent person fall for that one <laughs> and uh, I thought of it that well pride in the past and so all of a sudden your, your discrimination gets clouded and you have to be humbled you have to go in the wrong direction and then realize that you're not omnipotent so another question about how much austerity should you do is that if you begin see people are different some people are so easily, it's so easy for them to discipline themselves that they have to think about what's really right. We tend to just do, a friend of mine said to me, he said, I've never missed a meditation, never. And he said, I know a lot of people think that's a great accomplishment. He said, but for me, it really isn't that much of an accomplishment. It's just something I know how to do. And it was an interesting statement. You know, some people, you just already know how to do something and you're not really growing by continuing to do it. You have to find another edge where you're good at it. And so some people are very austere by nature and they're not necessarily growing by just continuing to be austere. You have to think about um, where the balance point is for you. And it's not always that pride is the enemy. It's just that what we're trying to do is to come into balance. There's no... Just like you were saying, suffering in silence is not necessarily greater than involving the whole world in your life. It just depends on which way you're off. Because it's all about, if you think of the wheel, it's all about coming into the center point of the eternal now. And if you're on this side, you're going up. And if you're on this side, you're going down. And you're going literally in opposite directions in order to come to where you need to be, right in the middle. That's how you have to ask yourself how... How balanced am I? How much can I go just wherever I need to go? That's what Swami could do. Swami could just go wherever he needed to go. He was so balanced in the middle 
that whatever anybody needed from him, he was not prejudiced one way or another. He could just look at a situation and give it whatever it needed. He was never caught in, in a single thought. Daya um, Taylor was visiting us with the uh, Indian pilgrims, and I don't know how the question came up, but in our living room, I ended up telling a story on her that she'd never, she didn't know. When she, she came to Ananda, she was a very successful businesswoman, very executive person, still is. And Swami gave her the assignment of what's now called Treasures Along the Path, which is all the archival talks of Swamiji that come out every month. That's a business that Daya started. And when it started, there was a lot of thought, well, shouldn't this just be a department of Ananda Publications? Why is this a separate business? Swami's response was very simple. Oh, Daya needs her own business. <laughs> just like that. It's like she just has to, she needs to be able to just do this herself. Daya sort of looked at me like that. I said, you didn't, you never heard that? I thought he'd told her. I didn't realize it wasn't known to her. But it was like that's what works for her. It was just the right thing, and so he just went that direction with her, and it worked beautifully for her. It's that he could always just see, not what the rules are or what should be, he could just see what was going to move a person forward, and he would just do it just like that. Seva was a lot the same way. Many years ago when uh, Nidruva was new at Ananda Village, I mean, this story might be, Nidruva corrected me slightly on this, but it was something like this. Nidruva was a trained lawyer. She'd been a law professor, and she came into this rather undefined situation about the housing pool at Ananda and who owned the houses and what they were, and she was a little uncomfortable building this house on this land with no deed or no... There was nothing. You just sort of used your money and built the house, but you didn't actually own it. And it was making her a little uneasy. So as I understand it, Seva just sat down and wrote a deed to her house <laughs> and just sort of gave her... She, Seva was in charge then, just gave her a certain legal right to her house that nobody else in the whole community had. I mean, she wasn't stupid, Nidruva. She was a lawyer after all, but it was some kind of a binding something or another because she knew she needed it in the moment. And, it, and Save also knew it would never matter because she would gradually recognize what was happening. But it was such a fun moment when Save just did that. Okay, we'll solve this problem. You need a green suit? Come under the green light. Okay, now you have a green suit. But it was more deeper than that. It was just a real response that soul need is the only thing that counts. Swami described the spiritual director's job as to protect the individual from the institution. (laughs) In other words, that everyone's spiritual welfare is more important than rules, regulations, and all of this. Well, let's take a, a break, and then we'll come back. You know what I was saying about that man who told me that he never misses a meditation, that his sadhana is always just so, and that for him is no particular accomplishment, where somebody could spend their whole life trying to get just to that same point. It's, um, it's also it, nothing about the spiritual path, especially Master's path, especially our Ananda life, is all that tidy. It's very annoying, partly because we have an enormous amount of uh, work to do. And that's one of the things that kind of disrupts our, our, the tidiness of our life a little bit. I'll go back to Jyotish and Devi. They're very good examples. They, they're away from home so much of the time. They're traveling. They're at everybody's beck and call. They're just always giving energy. And, and their lives are not 
I get up at this time, I do these exact things. You're, you're traveling, you're, you're other people's guests, they're dictating the diet to you, they're feeding you when they want to, they're feeding you what they want to feed you, you're in another country. I mean, there's just all these different things where a whole lot of things that one might consider to be highly desirable spiritual qualities. You know, people like to control their external life and think about controlling their external life as a sign, well, even of tapasya. You know, I eat this, I don't eat this. I, I was talking to um, a friend, Suzanne Ilgen, last night, and her husband is from Turkey, and she was telling us she was actually regaling us, is the only way I can say it, with her experience of the first time she went to visit her husband's family and the relationship that the Turkish people have to food. Suzanne tells a story that in six weeks she gained 20 pounds because you were just expected to eat. And it was a tremendous insult if you didn't. And it was just, you know, she was just caught up in this reality. I mean, that was an extreme example of being a guest, but I've traveled a lot and somebody's, you've just finished a class and the last thing you want is the big dinner, but your host has spent all afternoon making the big dinner and when they bring out the big cake and it's 11 o'clock, you just can't really neatly say, oh, thank you very much. I don't think I will because it's their whole, their energy. Master talks about he went to India, he gained 60 pounds, remember? He came back and he said there was just no way that he could stop it. I, I remember our Bengali friend taught us the word shesh, which means enough, but she also showed us the hand gesture that had to go with it and the tone of voice that was required because it was the only way to stop the, the, pl- the food from just being piled onto your plate. And there was a, a way that it could be done. And we, we finally actually got pretty good at it so that everybody laughed at us and then we could stop. <laughs> but a lot of times you don't, just don't have control for, because other values have to come in. And one of those values often is that you can only do so much tapasya. And if you have a primary tapasya that you're having to do, you can't necessarily do your secondary tapasyas. And sometimes that primary tapasya is the service that you have to do, the number of hours that you have to put in, the stress that you're under. Swamiji, in, in, a, in a very true sense, he modeled this also. Whenever he did a big project, he would always kick back and enjoy. We'd go out to dinner, we'd celebrate, he'd take a few days off. He'd take a rest. I mean, Swami's idea of what a rest was was at a higher level than perhaps I would do it. But he always showed us a balance. He never just tightened the screw and tightened it and tightened it so that you would break. Because what we also have to understand is we really, most of us really can't do everything. We have to really pace ourselves for a very long distance run. Because most of the, you don't want to be what Swami and Master called a straw fire. Because a lot of people in the spiritual path are straw fires. They come in, they burn very hot, but they burn out because they just try to do everything. And they, they're not... Well, part of it is humility. You really have to understand that I'm not this good. I can do this job, but I'm going to have to have my ice cream when I go home. You know, I'm going to do this work, but I'm going to have to sleep more than the recommended six hours a night. I got an email from someone who was explaining to me how he was trying, how Swami said or Master said, you should sleep six hours a night. And he was telling me this long story about what was happening to him because he was trying to sleep six hours a night. 
you know, his complete sleep cycle was totally messed up, and it was just a mess. I wrote to him and tactfully suggested this was perhaps not the right practice for him. Maybe he should work on devotion. You know, it may be true that this is what Master said, but you can't do everything at the same time. And you have to use your common sense and say that this is a battle that maybe someday I'll fight, but I can't fight them all. And then you have to just look at the priorities. And for our path, much of the time, it's the service that we render. That the service that we render is more important than keeping our own personal life really in order. And sometimes our life is a little messy. Swami Kriyananda said when he um, decided to found Ananda, um, he knew that he was, he was going to have to so freely associate with, with so many different people, men and women together, and participate in the community life in a way that would not always allow him to protect his monasticism. And he said he stood at the edge of that and realized that he would just have to surrender that possibility to master because he needed to do this work. And the work came first. And he had to fight the battle. But he was willing to fight the battle because to not um, recognize the priority would not lead him to where he wanted to go. And then also the, the pride element, which is exactly what Master says here, that, uh, that you know, austerity can lead to pride. Well, the other way it leads to pride is that we try to do too much. We just think we're better than we are. And we just imagine that I ought to be able to do this. And instead of actually inwardly feeling what my realistic next step is, we just say, I ought to be able to do this. You know, we had the conversation here about brahmacharya earlier about sexuality and so on and how completely confused people get because I ought to be able to do this. Well, gee, if we were more advanced, we could. And it's not to say that it's not a good thing or that we won't someday get there. But you have to choose your battles. That's actually what I'm wanting to say. You need to choose your battles according to what the most important thing is. And Swamiji actually, he wrote somewhere. It was in the context of the Board of Directors of Self-Realization Fellowship and some of the attitudes that they had that he did not find ideal. But he, he put it in a very interesting way. He said, when you're climbing up the mountain you can't necessarily think about anything else except climbing up the mountain. You can't cover everything at the same time. And the mountain we might be climbing is whatever the, you know, the primary reality that we're working with is. I, just, I can't do that because this is what I'm doing. And just cut yourself a little slack so you can stay on the path. It's much more important to be on the path 25 years from now and still be fresh and enthusiastic than it is to hold to this particular thing right now. And after a few years, it's just all too much. You just lose the whole thing. And just recognize I'm not that good yet. That was my friend uh, who was in a very crabby mood for many weeks, and then I was assigned to ask her why she was so crabby. She, was, she, she had a sharp tongue, so it was a dangerous assignment. Why are you so crabby? Well, I'm having such a terrible time meditating. It was completely justified in her own mind. You know, I'm trying to meditate. My meditations are going so badly. Naturally, I'm crabby. That's what she was trying to say. I said, wow, when my meditations go badly, I try to be so nice because if I'm losing it in one area, I really want to gain it somewhere else. And so you just, you can't allow one thing to spoil another. It's just so these things happen. 
It's just the way we are. And why would we be better? If we were avatars, we wouldn't be here. Or we would be here, but we, the whole relationship to the situation <laughs> would be different. There's a clue. Okay, is that, is that, because it's an important point, and that's where the point, that's where pride comes in in a reverse way. You know, we can't let our pride blind us. And other people will answer you differently because everybody goes their own way on the path. This is the way that's worked for me. I need to say that because other people will tell you a different way of approaching it. So you can also listen to them. Then comes the last confusing sentence in this paragraph. <laughs> is there any comment on what I said or shall I go on? Should we get through this whole paragraph? It is most, because um, the quali- this quality can develop pride, in which case it becomes its own enemy. Uh, austerity is most safely practiced then in the spirit of benevolence of wanting to bless everyone. I have to admit, I've read this paragraph over and over, and I find it um, fabulously interesting, but the meaning of it is not as clear to me. I've blamed it on his editing, but perhaps I should blame it on my brain. That might be more to the point. But a spirit of benevolence of wanting to bless everyone. And I think it, and he says earlier, it means accepting but not causing pain. So, let me, I mean, hmm. I think that what he's partly trying to say is that too much tapasya can make you hard. You can, you can become hard in your own spirit. And you can be thinking more about your own tapasya. He's talking about pride here. This is what I was saying earlier. In some ashrams, a wholly different vibration is prized. You know, this kind of... Um, warrior-like austerity is the image of what the ashram is about. But that kind of pride is not necessarily kind. It's not necessarily thinking about, you know, being compassionate toward other people and helping them through their struggles and moving forward. So he's saying if you're practicing austerity, you should do it with an attitude that you're, you're, you're wanting even the... the the energy that you're gaining, you want it to be used in a way that is uplifting to others and not merely used as a way um, that is only powerful for yourself. And I think that's how you avoid the, the pride issue, which is the context in which he put this. Yes. Uh, almost trivial thing to say, but it just seems like Swami would say that about doing so many things. It's just, It's always nice to... Uh, live your life in a spirit of benevolence to others and to always try to be expansive and certainly in this situation. Right. He puts it forward, interestingly though, as the antidote to pride in tapasya because you can see the picture of the tapasya. See, this is where the word impersonal that Swami uses, which I had so many, it took me so many years to understand what that meant. You're not impersonal. People think to be impersonal means to be impersonal toward others. And you're impersonal by saying, well, you know, so you're suffering, so what? If you don't like what I've done, that's your problem. But Swamiji says to be impersonal is to be impersonal about yourself. And then, therefore, to be very sensitive to others. That doesn't mean to coddle them or foster their delusions. Um, But Swami was very um, attentive. I mean, just astonishingly attentive uh, to people's feelings and to people's needs all the time. 
I've been, as I told you, I've been reading through old notes and old things, and I'm just so impressed by how carefully he just dealt with everyone and everything. There was a situation, I mean, this is, this is just an example. This was when he was in India in 1976, he went, 77, he went on a, he was, he was gone for six months, I think. He was several months in Indian seclusion. And he left his car, his Chevrolet, his $75 army surplus car. And we had very few cars at that time. But he really didn't want that car to be used very much. And he particularly didn't, he wrote in this letter, I of course didn't remember any of this, but I had it there. He particularly didn't want this particular man to use the car because he said, whatever car that man drives, it breaks down. It's something about his karma. That's how he said. And so then he, uh, I, I read this in reverse order. I was reading my letters to Swami and I give him this long explanation about what's happening with his car and how Prakash was handling the car. And then I read what this was about. But then Swami adds, but if it's possible to avoid having this man drive the car, do so, but not, but do not let him find out. And rather let him drive it than hurt his feelings on this point, because you know how sensitive he is. Then I, I read this, I tell Swami this whole thing about Prakash, about how somebody drove the car, and then Prakash decided it needed to be tuned up. And he gave it to the mechanic and he told the man to work on any other car but this one. And then while it was sitting there, it got a flat tire. <laughs> and I wrote to Swamiji, I think Prakash has stolen the spare, but I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, so that the whole question was avoided because the car simply was in the shop and wasn't working. Which was exactly what Swami wanted. Just, you know, don't hurt people's feelings, but let's see if we can keep... But he. But it took me a long time to learn this because I would have just said, Swami doesn't want you to drive it. Or I would not have remembered. But Swami had to train me very carefully that nothing was more important than people's feelings. But he was impersonal about it. But it was still, he didn't want the man to drive the car because he knew it would break. Odd. You had something to say? This is going a little bit back. But I was thinking that um, having gratitude for the grace having gratitude for the grace that for being able to succeed at tapasya would help one be benevolent and, and have compassion for... To, to not take personal credit for what Yeah, yeah, and, and, just, and just being loving God so much for allowing this to happen. And also just realize that everything that happens is the grace of God. It's, the grace of God is such an odd um, concept be, um, in this sense which is you make absolute, you just absolutely work as hard as you can. You discipline yourself. You put so much force into it. And when you finally succeed, you realize you really had nothing to do with the success. So it's this strange combination of total effort and, and uh, complete impersonal realization that it wasn't, it wasn't you who did it ever. I mean, you see Swamiji work so hard and drive himself so fiercely for all those years, and then, but he never felt like he'd done it. And, and when you start moving in that flow of energy, the paradox resolves itself in your own experience. It doesn't resolve itself intellectually. You can't really explain it, but you, it resolves itself in your experience. And you can look back and realize that probably if you hadn't tried so hard, grace wouldn't have come. But even trying hard was the grace of God. It's better not to think it out too much. It's just watch it happen. And that's also why when you fail... 
you have to also realize that it's just not, it's not time to succeed. It's not that I'm a hopeless case. It's just not the astral hour in which it's going to work. It's just like that. You keep at it until that astral hour arrives. If, if I could go back even farther, um, I keep running the sentence in my head. Please hold uh, this close enough. So sorry. Accepting but not causing pain. I know. And I think about that maybe in terms of your um, David driving peanut butter dropping on your foot story, uh-huh. in terms of your first reaction being to lash out at him, you know, even though he might not have known uh, that anything happened. But in a sense, when the larger lesson being when pain happens to you, sometimes your first reflex is to lash out and cause well, pain to it's others. It's now, like somehow all, if pain hits me, if mm-hmm. I pass it on, I'll have less Right, of it. somehow you'll have less. So I guess I, I sort of am trying to see it in two ways, accepting, not causing. Um, I, I'm, I'm sort of seeing it as externally and internally. Whereas you're going through pain, it would be causing more pain to yourself to you know, maybe feel guilty about the pain or, you know, add other layers of emotion on top of it. Or as you're feeling pain to lash out at others with, you know, grumpiness or unhappiness or just general, you know, uh, displeasing nature. Um, I, I guess, which of those do you see it interpreted as, or is it kind of both? I think it's all and everything. And even to complain to God, why are you treating me this way? Um, accepting, but not causing pain. I mean, pain is just dissonant vibrations. You create pain in the universe just with dissonant vibrations. So whatever challenges you face, you just accept them without creating dissonance in response. I mean, pain is a small way of saying it. But there is this amazing, and you know, good friends and couples and parents and children. It just This is what happens. Somebody says something that's hurtful to you, and you think that if I can make someone else miserable, then I'll suffer less. It's, it's, and we do that all the time. Why did you talk to me like that? It's, it's like, my feelings are hurt, so I'm going to hurt yours. Wow, that's a real good strategy. How does that work for you? But we do that all the time. Instead of just accepting it and then giving benevolence back, I mean, the thoughtful person, if, if we could control our reactions, we would think, wow, why would so-and-so talk to me like that if they weren't completely miserable? I mean, this is the... POW being tortured. You know, this poor man is torturing me. What bad karma for him. I feel so sorry for him. This was Betsy and Corey Tenboom in the concentration camp when Betsy said to her younger sister, you know, we must pray for these people. And Corey looked around and assumed she meant their fellow prisoners. And she realized Betsy was really concerned about the guards because she was just so worried about the suffering they were causing for themselves. All this pain was being inflicted, but she knew that the only response was sympathy. But in our own personal life, that self-justifying, um, that just that belief that if we pass it on, we'll have less of it. And invariably, of course, it creates more because now the other person generally hands it back to you. And pretty soon you have a feedback loop going. And how is that working for you? <laughs> you know? It just doesn't, but it's very hard to persuade ourselves. It's very hard to persuade ourselves. And austerity is withholding energy from where, it, where you would like it to go, however he said it. From not, from, uh, how was it, remorselessly? That's not what he said, relentlessly. Um, 
resolutely, I quell my inclinations. Right? And that's why tapasya is patience. It's, a very, it's very subtle. It's really interesting to contemplate. And of course, bear in mind, this is one of the niyamas. This is one of the fundamental spiritual practices that all have to be in place for all, all the spiritual paths to work. You can't, we may not be able to successfully carry these out, but uh, we disregard them at our peril because these are the things that creep in there. And then uh, as the energy increases, the aberration begins to show and the whole thing begins to shake especially if we're self-justifying. If we're just lousy at it, that's not so bad. Because we're just lousy at it. And so when that thing comes up, naturally we crash and burn. But if we've covered it up with a lot of dishonesty, then it's really a lot of trouble. Okay? That takes us to the end of our cycle for tonight. So thank you very much. That was interesting, wasn't it? So we got through... uh, we're still in sutra number we're still in sutra number 232 and we got through one paragraph one, two, three, four, five, six lines wow yeah I think we actually did one line once but this is close to a record okay 